All right, would y'all turn with me to Joshua 11? Joshua 11, and as the kids head out, we're going to be uh, we're going to read Joshua 11:23, and then I'm going to pray. Joshua 11:23. <clears throat> so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory and praise this morning because you have given us a living hope in your gospel. Our eyes are often blinded by our own sin, our own emotions, and our own worldly circumstances. Please forgive us, Lord. We praise you that you have commanded your church to gather on the day of the week that we remember your son's resurrection. And on these days, we are reminded that there is a transcendent truth and a transcendent plan that is beyond us, beyond our comprehension, and beyond our circumstances. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us so that we might hand your kingdom's resources off to the Burkina Bay Church. Thank you for your spirit among them that is preaching the gospel amidst persecution and famine. May their preaching be fruitful in your name. And may the ministry of the word in this church be fruitful in both the heralding and the hearing of your truth this morning. Please anoint our time now so that any impurity in me or impurity in us may not get in the way of your word being proclaimed. And may we, like Joshua, do according to all that you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do you know how to stay firmly fixed in the present? How many of you, or how many of us, find your minds dwelling on the past, possibly reliving and replaying previous sins or hurts or events you wish you could change? Maybe you nostalgically sit in the past, wishing you could go back to a given moment, thinking life would be better if you were back there. You dwell on the past and you find yourself absent in the present because of it. How many of you are so worried about the future and what will come that you obsess about mitigating risk down the road? Maybe you are a dreamer in the hope of doing better and being less of a sinner in the future is all that keeps you going in the present. You dwell on the future and find yourself absent in the present because of it. Or maybe you're like me and you do both. Our Christian walk is often very similar. As I've pastored over the years, I've found that we often dwell on ourselves when we think about time, and we don't dwell on God. We dwell on sins of our past rather than remembering God's faithfulness in spite of our sins. Or we obsess about being better for the Lord in the future rather than holding fast to his promises. And because of this, we tend to rely upon our own power rather than God's. And we often miss out on the one spot in time where we can actually affect obedience to God, the present. What the Bible seems to show us is that the past and the future belong only to God as he sits above time. Only he can forgive and heal the past. You cannot. Only he can guarantee his plans in the future. You cannot. Where we find ourselves connecting to his sovereign plan is in the here and the now. And the question becomes, what will we do with this present moment? 
Friends, nothing five minutes ago matters any longer. Nothing five minutes from now can affect what's right here. Will we attempt to be God and affect what we cannot control, or will we walk in obedience in the here and now and leave the rest up to the sovereign providence of God? This is so important in the warfare that spans from Genesis to Revelation. In the midst of this long and brutal battle, we can quickly forget that God will be victorious, and he is faithful to fight on our behalf, as we saw last week. But if we remember his faithfulness, then we can more easily trust him and his providence so that we might obey his commands in the here and now. And if we do so, God is faithful to use our obedience. Can you imagine? To use our obedience as the very weaponry to assault the kingdom of darkness. It's a powerful thing when you really understand it. Our text this morning portrays this idea perfectly because structurally and thematically, it is what might be called a hinge chapter. Joshua as a whole sits as a hinge book between the promises of God shown in the Torah and the days ahead where God will fulfill those promises in a Messiah King. And with Joshua chapter 11 and 12, they act as a summary and a conclusion to the military conquest we've seen in the first 10 chapters. It's almost as if this is part two to last week, summarizing all the military details that have gone on. But then, 11 through 12 also serve as an introduction to God's fulfilled promises in the allotment of the land inheritance, which we will cover next. And then verse 23 that we just read clearly is the hinge verse where it notes Joshua's obedience in following the commands of God and then his handing out of the results of God's covenant faithfulness. And in this way, Joshua is the character that foreshadows the true hinge upon which all history hangs, our Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And as we look at this hinge chapter this morning, it will lead us into this allotment of inheritance, and we will see that the author's focus is on God's sovereign and unrivaled supremacy over what seems like insurmountable odds. We will see that he is faithful in waging warfare, just as we saw last week. But secondarily, we will see also that God wages war in the moment through the trusting obedience of his people. And both of these pieces are necessary for victory as they work in tandem, both God's faithfulness in the warfare and the obedience of his people. We will see them intertwined as we go throughout this morning. And this was an important message for the first audience, the Israelites, under assault from warring kingdoms. And it is for us as well, because we will need to remember in the present moment that the war may be long and it may be brutal, but God will be victorious. The war may be long and brutal, but God will be victorious. Let's begin our journey through these two chapters with the opening of Joshua 11, 1 through 5. Joshua 11, 1 through 5. When Yabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Yobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinneret, and in the lowland, and in Nephoth, Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. 
And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, the author gives us the background to this long and brutal war by admitting that it often seems like we face seemingly insurmountable odds. Seemingly insurmountable odds. You will notice that this chapter begins almost exactly the same as chapter 10 did. Both start with the leader of an adversarial coalition coming against Israel. And chapter 10 details the war against the southern Canaanite coalition. And chapter 11 here details the war against the northern coalition. But chapter 11 is not as detailed. It instead summarizes the whole campaign of Joshua and Israel. And the northern coalition of chapter 11 is slightly different than what we saw in chapter 10. The author begins by giving the names of kings and city-states, but trails off into a description that lumps together more hordes than can be counted. And this is all the northern half of Canaan. Hazor alone was a mammoth city. Archaeological remains have been found that detail the mound or the tell upon which the city proper sat, and it's one of the largest in ancient Canaan. If that group alone went against Israel, it would seem like insurmountable odds. Hazor was core to trade and warfare. It was huge. It sat on the place called the Way of the Sea that was a route between Egypt and the northern kingdoms, and it was powerful. The size of the opposing army is not just Hazor. It's also the fact that Hazor is the head of all these other kingdoms, these other city-states, and he brings them together, and the author uses the metaphor of sand on the seashore to describe their size. Now, this was a familiar saying that simply meant too many people to be counted. Have you ever sat on the seashore and tried to count the grains of sand? But it meant even more to the original audience of the Jewish people. This image was the same that God used to promise Abraham that his offspring would eventually grow into a nation and eventually a spiritual household across all nations. He did this in Genesis 22. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice even in this verse the connection between God's promise of vanquishing his enemies, that the gate will be possessed by Israel, and how it intertwines with Abraham's obedience. He was one man, and from him and his obedient line, God would make a nation. God's actions are sovereign and providential, but in his sovereignty, he chooses to use his people as his tools of warfare. And so the imagery in the mind of the first audience listening amidst the time of the judges, seeing that they were under siege, would have sparked in them a knowledge that even in the face of insurmountable odds, God would prove faithful to his promises. This horde may seem as big as the grains of sand on a seashore, but God's promise is bigger. God's promise of a nation is greater. Even if the enemy seems vast, God's promises are greater. But then we also notice that very practically, the military intel and statistics speak to an insurmountable foe. These armies were not from the hill country, but from the valleys. They waged war with the use of horses and chariots. It would be like saying in our day that we would send in men with pitchforks to fight against tanks. But God's commands amidst these insurmountable odds speaks to God's desire to make his power known among the nations. You see, even if Israel wanted to fight fire with fire and gain their own special unit of charioteers, 
God was not going to let them do so. If you recall from our reading, God spoke very clearly that the armies of Israel would trust in God alone and not their own military might. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, we might say in our own day, some in political candidates. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? Amen. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now, does that mean that they were to just sit on their hands and not wage warfare? Does that mean, in my joking manner, that we should never vote because, well, it's just going to happen? No. God uses his people to wage warfare. If you haven't voted yet, by the way, go vote. Side note. (laughs) But secondarily, the whole point of this is God is the one who empowers the fight. It's not the strength of man, the strength of their military, the strength of their political power. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And God wanted to make his glory known through his people that he would not make them mighty through political or military power. He even commanded in the law of Deuteronomy that future kings not search out or acquire many horses. God intentionally wanted them to stay meek so that they knew that their power came from the Lord. They were going to wage battle with whatever tools they had, but at the core of their fight, their strength would not come from their strategy or weapons, but from the Lord and him alone. Friends, what do you trust in in your fight against sin? Is the Lord the core of your fight? Is he the one that empowers it? In the eyes of Israel, in the midst of this story, they were about to go up against a massive cohort of forces. But let's pause for a moment and see God's providence at work even in the larger picture of geopolitical events that had been happening to set up this scene for Israel's victory. It might seem, if you're standing on the ground amidst Joshua and his army, you're thinking, this is all there is. This is what God is doing, is using these people. But their obedience intertwined with God's work. And so let's think about this for a second. Archaeologists have found a group of letters called the Letters or Tablets of Amarna. And these tablets give validity to the events portrayed in Joshua. These are real archaeological finds. They're a large collection of letters sent between political leaders of Egypt and their representative heads of government in Canaan around the time of Joshua's conquest of Israel. Now, the Amarna letters reference a group of outsiders or nomadic people known as the Abiru, who many archaeologists and anthropologists believe is, in fact, the Hebrews. Hebrew was a caste or social class name given not just to Israelites, but to anyone who was considered an outsider, a raider, or even a nomad. And so to be a Hebrew did not mean you were Israelite, but to be an Israelite meant you were a Hebrew. The letters note that these Abiru were making military gains and causing concern amidst the Canaanite noble class. They were complaining to the Egyptian leaders, we need your help, these guys are kicking our butts. Now there is a debate about how much these tablets refer to the Hebrews, and by extension, their routing of the Canaanite people. But the one thing that there is no debate on, what they give us for sure, is an idea of the military alliances of the time. Now, most of these city-states that the Jews were conquering, these military units of Canaan, were under the umbrella government of Egypt and therefore were aligned loosely with one another. And so it would have been very easy for Egypt in the south to align with all of the various Canaanite city-states. They were already in alliance and in one fell swoop take out this fledgling army of second-generation slaves and nomads. They could have done it in an instant. Likewise, if North and South had simply joined together these two coalition forces, it too would have most likely meant destruction for Israel. But think about the bigger picture of God's providence with me for a second. 
Through the events of the Exodus, God undercut the core of the Egyptian army and left the country itself in financial ruin. They could not help if they wanted to because of God's work in the Exodus. And then by entering the land where they did at Jericho, they literally cut Canaan in half so that the south and north could not join together. They came in in the middle. And then they defeated the south, so the north was left cut off from Egypt. And now, like a noose, they enclose around the northern city-states, and that's what we read here this morning. And you see God as a formidable general that commands the host of heaven and the detachment of his people on earth. And so when we find ourselves facing seemingly insurmountable, insurmountable odds, and we see that with our own eyes and our own ears and our own senses, like Israel did, we must remember that we do not see all there is. And if we did, we would realize that for God, there are no insurmountable odds. Amen? Amen. His providence is working behind the scenes in ways we cannot comprehend. So there is no such thing to God as an insurmountable odd. But that does not mean that there is then always a quick and easy victory. We often take this truth that we're talking about and believe that God will be at our beck and call. God is powerful. There are no insurmountable odds. So why doesn't he just do things the way we want them to quickly? But what we know and what we see in Scripture is that victory in God's providence rarely comes quickly and easily. Amen? And so next what we see is that God will call his people to obedient trust amidst a long and brutal war. Obedient trust amidst a long and brutal war. Let's read the next section. In Joshua 11, 6 through 18. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Uplifting, positive, encouraging, is it not? (laughs) 
This is rarely the memory verse that Caleb puts out. Well, last week, as we looked at the fact that God fights for his people, you probably had in mind a battle that you were undergoing personally or as a family or within your own walk toward holiness. And so much of the false gospel of prosperity that has invaded our minds and culture has told us that God has failed if the battle is not won on our timeline and without pain. You ever notice that, how that creeps up in your brain? God has failed me because he hasn't answered my prayer in my timeline. And man, this is hard. So God must not be powerful. Does anybody else ever have that? Yeah? Good, there's a few sinners like me. But throughout the narrative arc of Scripture, what we see is that the war for God's holiness to rule among his creation is actually long and brutal, and there's reasons for that. The casualties are vast, and the outcome is truly life and death of an eternal sort. Brothers and sisters, the word is clear to us. The battle we wage on behalf of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness, it is life long, and it is beyond that. If we are not prepared for this truth, please hear me, friends. If we are not prepared for this truth that the war is long, we will find ourselves simply surrendering to the enemy, even though victory is assured. Simply because it's too long for what we intended. The good news that God gives us is clear that he is faithful and he will bring his conquest to completion and keep his promises. But what he calls us to is to endure in trusting obedience. The conquest of Canaan was not as cut and dried as it may come across to us as Western thinkers who read a couple of pages and we think, God routed the Canaanites quickly. I wish he would do this in my life. And we've even heard before that we just need to have faith like Joshua in chapter 10 and pray a prayer of faith and God will solve our problems. But friends, that story is descriptive in nature. It is not prescriptive. If you have been trying to get the sun to hold still in the sky as a test of God's faithfulness to you, you are going to be very very disappointed. That was for Joshua in that day. That prayer was one of faith, yes, but it was unique above any day before or since. And even if we pray in faith, God's plans and timelines are often quite different from our own. But what we find out over time and in eternity is that his plans, his timeline, far exceed our own in terms of what gives him glory and brings us good. We're told in chapter 14, we'll see in a couple weeks, or actually next week, exactly how long the warfare in Canaan lasted. We're able to do the math from Caleb's age and realize that what we have been covering in the last 11 chapters is that Israel waged war in Canaan for seven long years. Why did it take so long? Why didn't God just look down and destroy the Canaanites instantaneously? Why didn't he do across all of Canaan what he did in chapter 10? Why doesn't he act instantaneously when I call or you call? Well, Scripture tells us clearly why the process of conquest over the Canaanites took so long, and it gives us an understanding of how his providence often works in our lives. First, God is patient and long-suffering. We're told that he wants that none should perish, and he does not glory in the death of the wicked, and so he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He waits for choices to be made in the fullness of a person or a people group's sin to be filled before he acts in fullness of judgment. 
And so from the point the offspring of Abraham went down to Israel, or excuse me, to Egypt all the way through the wandering in the wilderness, God was at work in Canaan to bring about the iniquity of the Canaanites to completion, and meanwhile in his own people to grow their hearts in trust and faithfulness to prepare them for battle. All of this was going on for 400 years before any of these individuals showed up. But then seven years of warfare. Why does God wait to conquer? Well, let me give you a few reasons. First, God wanted to grow his people's trust in him and patience in his promises. The greater gift is not the promise for which we hope. It is the one, it is in the one who has made the promise. The one who has made the promise is the greater gift. And sometimes patience is required to build trust in God. Very simply, sometimes patience is required to build trust in God. Secondly, God wanted to train up the Israelites in obedience to his commands even when things don't make sense. Or maybe they end in an outcome that the Israelites believe they did not deserve. Friends, sometimes we are being trained in patient obedience to be able to wage warfare when life doesn't make sense. And third, God wanted to make them warriors. Warriors must be trained and strengthened in the crucible of battle. Warriors are not made amidst comfort and entitlement. They would need to be strong to finish the conquest. They would need to be strong to fight back the small skirmishes of the enemy. Sometimes we are waiting, friends, because we are being trained up as warriors. Fourth, God sees and knows details that we can never understand with regard to the greater context in which the war is being fought. We have no idea of what's going on behind the scenes. In both Exodus and Deuteronomy, Israel was told that there was a very practical reason why God would draw out the conquest. Uh, This is from Exodus 23, verses 29 through 30. God said, I will not drive them, the enemy, out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. If God had wiped out all the Canaanites and you had the Israelites trying to figure out how to run the land, they probably would have been overtaken by wild beasts. Very simple, practical reason. Sometimes you just have no idea of the rest of the detail. And finally, even though we just went through chapter 10 and saw God's miraculous hand amidst the fight, at ground level, God still wages the war through ordinary means. Yes, he stopped the sun. Yes, he sent hail and it wiped out the majority of the enemy. But throughout the book of Joshua, what we see is that he wages war through ordinary means. God works through his people. He worked this way prior to Joshua. He worked this way after Joshua. And he works this way now amidst the global church. And warfare takes time, does it not? But then we also see that the war is not just long. We understand maybe now why it takes so long. But then we start to ask the question, why is it so brutal? God tells Joshua that he will make sure that they fall into Israel's hands, but then Joshua needs to complete the work by hamstringing their horses and burning their chariots. If you don't know what it means, hamstringing horses is basically like cutting the Achilles of a human so you can't walk, and then they would die, and they would kill the horses. 
And they would burn the chariots. They burned some of the cities, like Hazor, devoting the people to destruction. And twice it says that they left none who breathed. Friends, you cannot sugarcoat this or gloss over this. You have to be able to answer the world's calling this into question. Why was it so brutal? Why did they do this? And the answer is, is because God commanded it. A good and righteous and holy God commanded it. And it is clear that Joshua was commended for this work in verse 15. Friends, if we start to sugarcoat this or try and get around these things and not admit what I just did, the world will see right through it and they'll say, you don't even believe the book that you follow. God commanded it, and Joshua was commended for it. So why? It says in verse 15, Joshua left nothing undone of all that Yahweh the Lord had commanded Moses. And so we come again to the uncomfortable question of why a holy, merciful, gracious, and loving God would command this warfare. And again, I respond that the definition, the true definition of love is found only in the holiness of God's character and the law that proceeds from it. The world's view of love is flawed and perverse. The people groups being conquered here were those who would draw Israel into destruction temporarily and eternally, and they needed to be removed from the land. Love for his people dictated their removal, not that they would remain unconquered. So why don't we exactly do the same thing today? Why doesn't God call us to do the same thing today? A misunderstanding of this context has been used wrongly for centuries by people conquering lands. Why don't we do this today? Because God has not commanded it of the New Testament church as he commanded it of Joshua. And we fight a different warfare through the preaching of the word, but that does not discount his commands of the Old Testament. The simple answer is, is when God commands it, we do it. Now notice also that God was not partial. This is an accusation that has been made against him because of this book. His command of holiness and just judgment was clear in the story of Achan in chapter 7, was it not? Israel was conquered in the battle for Ai. Achan and his family who helped him hide the forbidden items were executed. And God showed that he is impartial and calls all to repentance and obedience and judges all by the same standard. Okay, so maybe he's impartial, impartial, but why burn with fire? Isn't that too brutal? Well, friends, in many cases, these cities were dens of depravity and pagan worship. They were dens of sin. The rest of the Old Testament shows that Israel could easily become ensnared if these were left in place. These were locations of sin. And so they raised them to the ground. And if you think that that is horrible and you disagree with that, the next time there's a school shooting and the community around it decides to raise the school to the ground and build a new one because it's a den of depravity and sin, I want to see you go tell them that that is not a good idea. These were raised to the ground because they were centers of sin and depravity. God was not committing sin by destroying them. He was bringing righteousness to bear. Okay, that's burning with fire. Why then harm the horses? What did they ever do to deserve their fate? Friends, this is bloody and grotesque. It is, but in this context, we have to remember that these horses were military equipment. Even today, we understand this. I read this week in the Wall Street Journal 
One of our military leaders referred to our ongoing Cold War, so to speak, with China and mentioned that if we are not ready as people and if our horses are not ready, then we will fall. He referred metaphorically to our military equipment as horses in 2022. And so we need to see them in that context. Israel was nomadic. They had no use for the horses, nor could they properly house them or feed them. To care for the horses meant their people would starve. And they surely wouldn't want them to fall back into the hands of the Canaanites or else they'd be used against them. Again, this is not too dissimilar from our military policy of destroying downed aircraft so that the enemy cannot use it against us. But even more important was the fact that the act of hamstringing and killing the horses was an act of obedience. Better for Israel to rid themselves of the horses than to acquire them and believe that they, under their own military might, had won the battle and conquered the land. They needed to learn trusting obedience, that God would be faithful, and in the midst of that faithfulness, he would strengthen and support Israel, also that they might win the battle through the same trusting obedience. Friends, if you're trying super hard when you run into folks who want to use this book against Christianity to apologetically try and get them to understand God's commands, guys, you're never going to convince a heart that is hardened against God as to why it was obedient to do these things. So don't try. Don't, don't be worried about it. I mean, try, evangelize, but when it doesn't come to fullness of completion, when they don't turn immediately, it's not that you've done something wrong. It's that their heart is hardened against God. And friends, perhaps the battle you find yourself fighting right now is like this, long and brutal. It's longer than anticipated and more brutal than you thought. Brothers and sisters, when the battle seems long and the odds seem insurmountable, we must remember that God's providence is still at work. He has not forsaken you. He is fighting for you. The war may be long and brutal, but God will be victorious. At the moment, it may feel as though we are the only ones on the battlefield. You may feel singularly alone, but it is especially then that we must remember the larger war that is happening. The war may be long and brutal, but God will be victorious. And we can take solace in the fact that what we often can't see, even if we are being obedient in the midst, is we often can't see God's patient and persistent assault on sin. Take a look at verses 19 through 20, and we'll see what was going on behind the scenes as Joshua and his warriors were waging warfare. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Just so the reader does not assume that it was only Joshua's faithful obedience alone that won the land, we are pointedly reminded here of God's sovereign hand amidst the battle. We must always remember that as we learned in Revelation, there is a spiritual level outside of time and space, and there is a physical, earthly level locked into time and space. And the two intertwine, and one affects the other in a way that will never make sense to us in this life. But let's examine how the author weaves these two together here. On the spiritual level, God has given the Canaanites generations to repent, as we already noted. At this point, with the sin of the people completed to a level where God 
would be unjust to look away. God is bringing judgment to completion by hardening their hearts further. This obviously brings to mind the Exodus and Pharaoh. God gives multiple kings and even Pharaoh himself multiple chances to repent from their sin against Israel and their God. But Scripture again weaves together the spiritual and earthly levels to make it clear that Pharaoh's heart was rebellious to God, and so God helped him to harden it further in that direction. Friends, if we resist God, he will be faithful to assist us further down that road. Similarly, if we repent and turn towards God, he will be faithful to assist us further down that road. Similarly here, the Canaanites have been rebelling previously against Yahweh for generations. They have heard of God's mighty justice. They may have even seen it take place. And they too had the chance, like Gibeon, to step forward in wise fear and come under the covenant blessing of Yahweh. But they did not. They instead attack Israel, making a response by Israel a just response. When you read this and see Israel attack, realize they were being attacked first. It's a just war. As John Calvin puts it, it was wonderfully arranged by the secret providence of God that, being doomed to destruction, the Canaanites should voluntarily offer themselves to it and by provoking the Israelites be the cause of their own ruin. You see, God is patient and he will give room, but all the while he will wage a slow but steady assault on sin so that the kingdom of his reign will be free of rebellion and disobedience. God wanted to remove all forms of impurity and rebellion that might draw his people away. Do you remember Deuteronomy 7, 2 through 4? Moses said to the people, When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and they would destroy you quickly. Side note, if you're a young person, if you pursue a relationship with someone who does not follow Yahweh, notice what the effect will be. It will draw you away and turn you from following the Lord. Take it seriously. Total side note. But something that I've seen so many times as a pastor. Well, what we see here is we see that God wanted to remove all forms of impurity and rebellion. Otherwise, they draw his people away. And so both God and his people were active in this war. God at a level where he continued to harden the hearts of the Canaanites against him and his holy rule, and then Joshua at a level of trusting obedience that even though the odds were insurmountable and the war was long and brutal, he would act moment by moment in obedience to accomplish all that the Lord had laid out. This slow but sure strategy led to the conquest of the land as we will see in coming chapters. But ultimately, it has its fulfillment in a future time, long past us, where God will conquer all of creation and stand in judgment over all who refuse to accept his merciful and loving hand of covenant. And he will cast them into eternal damnation, and he will renew the heavens and earth so that they are full of his reign and righteousness. God was completing a portion of this story in fulfillment of promises he made to the Israelites in the first five books of the Bible. And God will eventually complete his promises in fullness as all creation comes under his loving rule. And so what we see in Joshua is a microcosm of what he is doing in all of creation in fighting against sin and unrighteousness. And in the meantime, he is working amidst his church and within every one of our hearts to wage a patient and persistent assault on sin. 
Friends, for you, sin might be these sporadic events that happen in your life, but there is always an underlying wave of sin and rebellion. And God is fighting against that at all times. And so if we do not have a consistent, persistent, and patient fight against that, God will slowly allow us to be taken by it and given over to it. But if we fight against it, he will empower us in that fight. In chapter 10, Joshua experienced a day unlike any other where God fought on behalf of his people and routed the enemy to a point where they could never recover. From there, it was assured that as Joshua and his people obediently followed God's commands, they would slowly but surely conquer the land that God had promised them. And the history of Israel that we see through the rest of the Old Testament shows us that this only started to fall apart when Israel turned away from a pure worship of Yahweh. But then at the cross of Calvary, the world experienced a day also unlike any other where God fought for his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven, was enthroned at the right hand of the Father God, and he now reigns over his kingdom as we obediently follow his obedience, waging warfare through the preaching of the gospel. And we do so two ways. We preach it evangelistically to those who haven't heard, and we preach the gospel to our own hearts every moment of every day to wage warfare on the sin that sits within us. Each day as we do so, we wage an assault on that sin that so easily ensnares us and draws us away from a pure devotion to Christ. And the odds, friends, at times, if you're anything like me, they seem insurmountable, don't they? We see the darkness of our own hearts and we look and we say, this is insurmountable. How could I fight this for the rest of my life, Lord? And yet the Lord is faithful. The war seems long and brutal, but God will be victorious. We must remember that we are in this place in God's plan where we are in the in-between and the here but not yet. He reigns and has conquered, but it's not fully complete. And like Joshua, we have a strong foothold over sin, and the enemy has been conquered to an extent, but battles to finish the conquest continue. So to stay strong, we must look back to the past to see the Lord's faithfulness, as Israel did, and we must recognize that the future has been promised by the Lord, and our response, therefore, is to stay faithful in our present obedience. Friends, I have a homework assignment for you this week. This week, I want you at least in your personal devotion time, or maybe as couples or roommates or families or within your discipleship groups, I want you to spend time recalling the faithfulness of the Lord. Where has the Lord shown himself faithful in the past? Perhaps you could even write it down. You could journal and log how God has shown himself faithful to you, to those you love, and to the church in general. Take time to remember the faithfulness of the Lord and rejoice and celebrate. If you need help, this whole book is full of the faithfulness of God. If you need help, start with the cross. And then I want you to recall the promises that God has given to the church with regard to a victorious future. And friends, once you've done this, recall the faithfulness of the past, looked to the promises of the future, I want you to spend some time in prayer asking the Lord to help you by His Spirit be obedient in the faith in the day-to-day. Ask him through prayer, Lord, help me to be obedient in the, day, in, in the current day. Now, the New Testament tells us clearly that this work of Joshua, while so important in the history of Israel, was also a picture for the church. 
Joshua calls us to obediently follow Christ in waging warfare against sin within us and the sin amongst us, and he does so, calls us to it every day. And this is from the author of Hebrews. Would you turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. And look at what he's asking the church to do. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 8, going through verse 13. Give me an amen when you're there. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now this is interesting because as we'll see in a moment, it says very clearly at the end of chapter 11 that the land had rest from war. But that wasn't the rest that was the fullness of the promise. There is a further rest that God promises. And so what does he call the church to do here in Hebrews, starting in 4.11? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Is strive an active verb? Do you think it's one that requires a bit of hardship and brutality? It takes a lot of work and time. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. I love that he includes the weapon we're supposed to use. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Interesting, isn't it, that we have this picture of Joshua bringing the edge of the sword against the enemy, and the author of Hebrews says we do the same thing to the sin that's within us by the word of God. Amen. The battle is long and brutal, but we must stay focused on daily obedience, not to earn salvation, but because our greater than Joshua, Jesus Christ, has already conquered. And if we want to enter the rest that he brings then we stay faithful in the fight with him because he fights on our behalf, but then we are called to wage the same warfare in obedience. If we do so, we will inherit a rest better than that which was given to Joshua and those he led. Friend, if you are a visitor here today and you don't know Jesus, the loving warning that Scripture gives you is that unless you turn and repent from your sin today and lay your life down in the hands of Christ, you will be given over more and more, with every passing day to your rebellion against God and your desire to run your own life. The Bible is clear that it will end in destruction. If you today have any sensitivity to the call of Christ, don't let it pass you by. For it may not be there tomorrow if your heart is hardened much further. If you want to follow Christ, please come talk with one of us pastors after the service about what it is to follow Christ because Christ has called you, Christ has died for you, Christ loves you, and he wants to lead you in a walk with him. To those of you that already know Christ, to my brothers and sisters here today, I want to ask you, what stronghold of sin is the Lord trying to wield the sword against in your life? What sin has held on in your life that God is speaking to you today that you need to devote to destruction? Perhaps it's an obvious thing like an addiction, but maybe it's less obvious like an attitude, a discontentment or an entitlement, a way of relating, a way of thinking, an attitude of rebellion, attempting to control the past or control the future or control other people. Where is God calling you to obedience where disobedience has been present? 
And friend, maybe you've tried to fight it in the past and been unsuccessful or never felt strong enough for the battle. Well, our text from Joshua speaks to you that God fights for his people, and in the face of even, even insurmountable odds, God has been and will wage a persistent and patient assault on sin. And so he is calling us to trust in him, to be obedient to his commands, to follow him amidst the long and brutal war. Today he's calling us to wage war. Because in his gracious timing, when he declares it so, even the strongest enemies, even the strongest enemy, the strongest stranglehold in your life that the enemy has, it will be defeated. And we see that in the remainder of the section this morning. Let's turn back to Joshua and read our last section. And it seems like a long one, but I'm not going to go through all of chapter 12 in reading. Let's look at the end of 11 and 12. 11.21, it says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Chapter 12, now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. And then he goes down and he categorizes all of them. And he says in verse 6, Moses, the servant of the Lord and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then he continues and says, And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Lord, uh, Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then he begins a categorization here, a catalog. He says, The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. And he continues this all the way down, and he finishes at the end of verse 24, in all, 31 kings. What we see here, friends, is the unrivaled supremacy of God that is the outcome of the long and brutal battle, because God will be victorious. Now, this section should give us the fuel we need for the fire of battle against sin in our own lives and amidst our local church and in the world as a whole. This is a long section, and I know I went through it quick, but its meaning is clear. The war may be long and brutal, but God will be victorious. Amen? The war may be long and brutal, but God will be victorious. Now, first, Joshua, at the end of chapter 11, encounters Anakim, and it is mentioned as if it is no big deal. But remember who they are. The Anakim are the giants that caused the spies to give a bad report to Israel and walk in disbelief against God's promises. They are the ones that made Israel see themselves as grasshoppers to be squashed. They were the source of Israel's unbelief. And this unbelief was the background to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Joshua and Israel fighting against these imposing warriors, which there are archaeological finds that tell us that there was a race of people uh, that were from about seven feet tall to nine feet tall, right? So I'm almost seven feet tall, so I would be the point guard among these guys, right? Okay? 
So they were a large group of people, and so they were a bit intimidating. Now, through God's providence and by way of the trusting obedience of Joshua and those who followed him, they were able to defeat even these enemies that seemed at one point unbeatable. Friends, this is the story of your life and mine. At one point, the odds may seem insurmountable, but God will come back and he will conquer it in his providential timing if we just simply stay obedient. Friends, what is that unbeatable stronghold of the enemy that is present in your life? What is the thing that seems like it has held you back from walking in obedience to Christ? The battle against it has been long and brutal, I know, but in God's timing, he will be victorious over it. So keep being obedient in the fight. Reach out to someone in this church, a pastor or your group leader, and ask them to help you. Reveal whatever it is you're fighting against so that God can be victorious in your life. Because verse 23 declares God's victory very clearly. Again, it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. We will see as Joshua continues that there were still pockets of rebellion to fight, and the fight would continue. But as a whole, Canaan has been dispossessed, and Israel is in control at this point in the story. Only now will Joshua be able to give Israel the land inheritance. But before we get there, the author of Joshua thought it fitting to catalog the supremacy of God, and this is where I finish. And so in chapter 12, he lists all the kings that were defeated under the leadership of Moses, the servant of the Lord. And to show the continuation of leadership and victory, the second half is those defeated by Joshua. Now, I am not 100% sure that this is why this list is here or why it is written the way it is, but this is interesting. In Hebrew, it is a list that sounds like this, starting in verse 10. It says, the, uh, it says, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won. It would read like this in Hebrew. Melech, Jerusalem, Ichad. Melech, Hebron, Ichad. Melech, Yarmut, Ichad. Melech, Lachish, Ichad. Melech, Iglon, Ichad. Do you get the point? It was rhythmic. Now, what's interesting is we hear it in English and think nothing of it, but I wonder, I wonder if as the Jew listened to this, they recalled to mind the scripture that every Jew knows by heart, the great Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, it is Shema, O Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ichad. For the Jewish people, as they heard, Melech, Jerusalem, Ichad. I wonder if they would repeat in their minds, this king thought he was the one. But there is only one. Shema O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ichad. For the Jewish people, there is one God, there is one authority, and there is only one king. It is the core of their covenant obedience, and it is the core of our new covenant obedience. Friends, you have only one king, and he is a victorious king. And one day you will be able to stand in eternity and look back at the strongholds in your life that attempted to be king, you will look back at the fact that you attempted to be king and you will see that that sin is defeated and that God has been raised victorious as the one and only king. I wonder if the thought of the Jewish readers as they heard this read or read it is that the Lord alone is king. You see, friends, this entire section speaks of the faithfulness and the victorious nature of God. Because what had been promised all the way back in Deuteronomy was that all of this would happen. In Deuteronomy 7, 
They were told, you shall not be in dread of your enemies, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed, and he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. God promised this to Israel. And this section of two chapters is proof, especially chapter 12, of God's faithfulness in bringing his promises to completion. Brothers, sisters, the war, it is long and brutal. But God will prove himself victorious. Like Israel in our text today, we need to see that even though the odds seem insurmountable, even though it is a long and brutal war against sin, we must recognize that God is waging a patient and persistent assault, and he is calling us to act in obedience as the weapons of his warfare. And ultimately, we will show him in unrivaled supremacy. May God hold us firm as we wage warfare against sin on his behalf and as we wait patiently for the fullness of his victory to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are so blind to so much in ourselves, in those around us, and in your providential plan. We pray this morning that you would help us to be even a measure, even a small bit, like the Apostle Paul, that when he was Saul, he was blinded, but when you saved him and brought him to yourself, he was given sight in a way where he could see the truth of who you were and the truth of your plan. For each and every one of your people in this room, those of us who are in covenant with you, Lord, we pray that you would give us that vision, give us that ability to know, even if we don't know the detail, that you are waging warfare at every moment on our behalf and within us. And what we are called to do in remembering your faithfulness in the past and looking forward to your promises is to be obedient in the present. And so, Lord, all we have to control, all we have to act on right now is where we are sitting right now. All we have to do is to act in obedience in what you've called us to in celebrating communion and in remembering what your son did on our behalf. And Lord, we also glory in the fact that in this communion supper and in worshiping you, we get to recall the fact that through Jesus, you have established victory and you are bringing it about and it will be complete at one point in the future. And so help us to be obedient and trust in you in the midst. Lord, we get so tired when the war is long and brutal. And so we cry out to you today that we need you by your Holy Spirit. We need your word to be active in our life and in our church. And we need you by your Holy Spirit to dwell within one another, to encourage us and build us up and convict us and make us into warriors that can fight on your behalf every moment of every day that we are alive and have breath. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.